0: saw this i guess i wanted to share just two things so one um i had the chance to interact with Canel on um on another opportunity and um i think this is gonna be pretty cool uh he's really thoughtful and obviously you can see kind of what he does on here
1: on um coal stocks but uh, this is is pretty interesting especially given kind of what i've seen him work on on some other stuff and so um you know
0: not that is going to be a i guess he's not here or maybe he's here now but um, not that it's
1: necessary to have an endorsement, but you know, I, I his <laughs> perspective on stuff really interesting. And uh, I think I think when you get to know people, sometimes you get to appreciate them more or less, depending. And uh, you know, I think uh, I think sometimes that can be helpful in terms of paying more attention or less attention to what they're saying. And I think this will be more interesting given what I've gotten
0: to know about him so far. Wow. So, so KNL is here with us now. And with that, with that endorsement from Josh, you're really, you're really going to have to p- perform on this call. So no pressure, no pressure whatsoever.
2: Yeah. Thanks, thanks oh, okay. guys. Uh, Josh, thank you for the, the kind words. Really appreciate it. Um, sorry. I'm, I'm late. I was just on another call. Um, so uh, how do you want to kick this off?
0: Yeah. So, so why don't we, let's kind of jump right into it, but before we do, Uh, I, I always like, I'd like to hear a little bit about you. I mean, of course we've interacted a ton on the coal stocks, but, but I know your interests uh, are not just coal, but you know, in our interactions, you really do unbelievable work, deep dives. Uh, I've been really impressed. So maybe just give a little bit of your background, uh, how these, you know, how these, um, stocks became of interest to you, uh, and just a little bit about your investing style as well.
2: Yeah, sh- sure. So um, my background is, is finance. I, I do have a, a CFA um, and uh, spent a number of years working at buy side uh, energy hedge fund analyst, um, then moseyed into a uh, business development role in, in oil and gas in, in Alberta for, for a number of years um, and, and have since kind of um, made a move into uh, biotech for a period of time and um, true love really is and has been energy from a from from a investment style standpoint i I really like to to try and um focus on names that i I feel like aren't getting the uh the attention that their business is is warranted um so you know ideally i want to go where where other people aren't spending time um i want to focus on 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 um less understood names or or, or um, sectors and i want to as it's the best of my ability um learn how to analyze those um those industries or or, or names uh, as i can so you know i, I have no problem uh learning uh at, you know getting into as deep of the detail as, as is possible um, if that means going into to data tables that most people won't look at, uh, I'll do that. If that means you know tearing through the uh, the company's filings, I'll do that. Um, I just the more the more I can learn, the better. Um, on a specific name, um, that's kind of my view. Uh, from a from a macro standpoint, I've been focused on energy. The uh, the last let's call it two years, I, I was starting to get really bullish energy at the end of 2019. And then, of course, uh, March 2020 happened and COVID happened. So so that was frustrating. But it, in a roundabout way, I, I think that um, the the advent of, of COVID has essentially um, compounded the issue here with, with, with the long-term energy supply. Um, you know we should have started to see a, a a bit of an energy resurgence at the end of 2019 in, in my view and then covid hit and, and and really uh did a number to many different energy companies not just oil and gas um, you know coal anything to do with with commodities and um that was that was the shakeout of all shakeouts so it, it, in my mind that that killed a lot of um supply in, in many different industries of energy and that's kind of why we've seen a, a bit of the the tightness in in price for a lot of these markets in the last you know 12 months um, so so I'm still focused on that and, and I think that the ESG element um, just adds to the potential tightness and um, that is where I'm at today and and how I got into coal really in the last Year I've been focused on coal, and thankfully the uh, the coal Twitter community has been um, uh, so insightful. Um, you know, between Cosgrove and, and, and Matt uh, and, and many others that I've been able to to ping ideas, ask stupid questions. I've been able to learn quickly and get up to speed quickly. Um, and you know, I, I'm confident there's still more learnings to do there. Um, but it, it just, it blows me away, especially with coal, because I'm used to kind of more of a oil and gas standpoint where information is readily available. Um, coal is, everything's a bit harder to find, um, whether it's price, <laughs> volumes, um, production, it's, it's all a bit harder to find. And I think that makes it um, more interesting as a potential market to, to, to outperform Um, so I kind of, I'll leave it at that. Did that uh, provide enough of a, of a background? Yeah, no, that's great. And and just one, one other
0: kind of broad macro question of mine, I guess. So if there's somebody on the call that knows energy well, but hasn't really looked at coal, um, walk through your rationale for, Hey, there's a lot of exciting stuff in energy, but this is why, you know, this is why I'm particularly interested in, um, really both the thermal and, and, and med coal side.
2: Oh boy. <laughs> okay. So for, for, for thermal coal, I think um, I'd like to think of um, anything to do with power gen from a, from a grid standpoint. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I don't know if, if you've been following me, I would like to occasionally talk about the grid. Um, and, and I think the grid is, is kind of the, the fundamental, um, the fundamental backbone of, of the economy. So I think if you get the grid right, you know, the economy can can, can do a lot of things. Um, if you get the grid wrong, uh, you know, look at Europe, it can, can cause a lot of problems. So when I look at the grid, and, and I've spent a number of hours go, going through the different um, generation types on the grid and, and, and different generating regions, you know, we, we have seen a tremendous change to it. Um, in the last kind of 10 years, we, we've seen a, a big movement away from, from from coal into natural gas. and A lot of that had been driven by natural gas prices being so low and, and natural gas being funded by uh, cheap capital, in, in my opinion. Um, I don't think we live in that environment anymore where there, there's significantly cheap capital for natural gas um, producers. And uh, I think there are a number of other... Kind of politically driven situations that, that that make natural gas a bit harder today. Um, such that what what we've seen in the past kind of ten years, as far as coal retirements and natural gas becoming a, a larger part of the grid, I, I think that is going to slow significantly. For for, I mean, first of all, the economics of it are are a bit closer now. You know, natural gas is not. Two bucks or two fifty. It's it's three fifty or four bucks, an MMBTU. And I think that when you look at kind of the switching cost from a grid standpoint, we start to switch from uh, from coal to gas around three fifty. Um, so you know I I think if as long as we 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 continue to see extreme LNG export. you're going to see a a bid into natural gas prices here domestically. So I like that. Um, so also kind of taking a further step back and looking at, you know, so we, we have a, a grid that's been changing over the last 10 years, that's gone more to natural gas, predominantly driven by cheap natural gas and the, the energy loser has been coal, but, um, one of the challenges the grid faces that that people are unaware of is that um, natural gas is a just in- time delivery system. And when you build a just- in- time delivery system, a lot of weird things can happen just in time. Um some of those things are are are, are cold weather related, and some of them are price related. and I, I think as you know natural gas becomes a larger portion of the grid, um, you know well, natural gas might have been great at thirty percent of the grid. At forty percent of the grid, um, when a when a cold spike hits, you can run into huge issues of deliverability, and I think that's I think that's just going to become a bigger and bigger theme here as time goes on. Um, I, I've demonstrated it in another post that in 2018 in PGM, the region that console sells its um, coal, that natural gas um, was unable to deliver higher than its average delivery for the year from a power generation standpoint. So why is that the case? I believe that to be the case because natural gas, um, from a priority standpoint, if it hits a, if you get cold weather, natural gas first gets routed to the, the retail um, customer. So, you know, sorry, residential customer. Um, so, you know, first priority for natural gas is for it to, to heat your home. And then once it heats your home, it, it then can go into um, the power pool for, for generation. And then, you know, if you add another kind of level to that thinking, um, LNG is, is pulling from for, for natural gas as well. So, you know, if it gets cold, then first residential gets their, their part and then the power grid gets its part, but the power grid is pulling it from available supplies that LNG export is pulling from as well. So, if it gets cold and there's not enough for um, power, the power grid and LNG export, um, what do the bidding dynamics look like? Um, if I'm an LNG provider and I'm selling the stuff for you know north of thirty or forty dollars an MMBTU, you bet your ass I'm willing to pay more than four dollars an MMBTU here in, uh, domestically. So, I, I, I think there's a lot of uh, like hidden volatility in natural gas right now that people don't realize. Um, I mean, of course, the, uh, the last kind of 20 days of, of non-winter December has been uh, painful, but I, I think all you need to demonstrate that natural gas is gonna be an issue is for a cold snap of, I think, north of five to 10 days. And if it hit PGM, that'd be great, but if it hit any other region, right now on kind of the East Coast, I think that that might be enough to demonstrate how vulnerable we are. And I think that every year that we, we don't see that shot, I think we just get more and more vulnerable. Um, we, we do have a, um, a just-in-time delivery issue for the grid, whether it's natural gas being just in time or solar or wind being just in time, you can't, store, you can't really store those, those uh, energy molecules not well, um, not right next to the energy generator. Um, What you can store is you can store nuclear, you can store oil and you can store coal. And um, frankly, we don't store nuclear because it's too damn good. We just, we run it as much as we can. Um, For oil, we run into issues about, do we have enough storage available um, close to the generators? And, And I think you start to run into issues there. So in my view, I think coal is the best storage asset we have right now for the grid. So we run into variable weather dynamics. I think coal is the best able to support the grid at that time. So whether it's winter or it's summer, I think coal has a place in the grid. And
0: k I think that's a good... Um... As a quick aside, the book that you recommended to me called Shorting the Grid, I think is a really good, if you don't have to be an energy expert to read it, uh, hence why it kind of spoke to me. Um, but I thought that was a really good, um, it gave you really good background on how a lot of these issues that we have uh, are not necessarily about physics, sometimes they're often about policy, um, you know, and, and the the woman who wrote the book was kind of an expert, particularly on the on the uh, I think it's ISO in the Northeast. So, anyways, a good a good plug if you really want to uh, kind of dive in on this topic, shorting the grid is is a good way to get up to speed
2: really quickly. So, I mean, just to add to that a bit, you know, if we if we're serious about reshoring manufacturing in any material way, um, there's going to need to be energy demand growth here domestically. And uh, that's going to need consistent supply, and and, and um, it, it's going to necessitate new generation. And I, I just I don't think that renewables are there yet. Um, and and frankly, I I'm not sure solar or wind will ever get there. Um, I'm hopeful that we have a an epiphany moment that you know maybe nuclear is the way to go. Um, or or who knows if there's another energy innovation out there. But, um, you know, as far as I can see right now, the options available to us are really, um, you know, coal, natural gas, nuclear. Nuclear takes a long time to build. Coal, we have a lot of facilities that are already built that we just need to commit to not retiring too fast so we end up like Europe. And, and then natural gas, well, we've already... Um, we've already been building tremendous amount of natural gas. My concern there is that natural gas, uh, I think as it becomes a larger portion of the grid, we become significantly more vulnerable. So, so I, I, I think that um, to a certain extent, the ERCOT event was a bit of a demonstration of that. And I think that um, there's potential for the United States East Coast to have an ERCOT-like event with not nearly the same weather.
0: So quick question for me before we get to Consol specifically, I just have two questions on the LNG comments that you made. So first is, uh, you know, I understand why there's a bid under under U.S. natural gas pricing because, you know, we, I don't know, I think we're I think we're exporting something like 15% uh, of our gas production at this point. Um, but my question is, one, one question I have is, why is it not a larger bid? I mean, the ARB, you know, the ARB, Uh, between kind of us prices versus uh the asian and european benchmarks is is insane uh and then my second question um is the real risk to that thesis not necessarily about lng pricing itself uh in the united states or gas pricing itself um but these kind of crazy huge offshore discoveries that somebody like bp has um you know in the trillions of uh MCF, that kind of thing, um, is that more of a risk longer term to natural gas pricing? Is is uh, has nothing to do with the United States, and more is about the global LNG market kind of sorts itself out uh, and has nothing to do with the United States.
2: Well, so, so I guess to address the first question about arbitrage North America to, to Europe, you know, we're infrastructure constrained there, and so so that's why we're not seeing that arbitrage tighten. Um, at least that that's my view right now. I think, um, you know, we look to put on a few more LNG facilities, uh, the first kind of half of 2022. And so that could tighten things too, but post 2022, I think it isn't until 2024, 25 that we start to have more LNG export capacity for North America open up. Um, you know, you've got to keep in mind that, um, you really have to think of it from a North American standpoint. You know, we have Canada exporting gas to United States, and hopefully there'll be LNG on the west coast of Canada here in 2025. And that's going to change the dynamics significantly. Um, and then again, we have the United States exporting gas to Mexico and Mexico choosing natural gas as a reliable energy source going forward. And and, of course, also trying to get into the LNG export game a bit, too. Um, so so hopefully that kind of addresses the arbitrage question. So I, we just don't have enough um, physical infrastructure to arbitrage it completely away. Um, on the international exploration front, um, your question, is, I guess, is, is more of a supply demand for LNG. Is that a fair way to interpret it?
0: Yeah. And just, I mean, ultimately, Consol, actually, that's I'm going to cut myself off because Consol does have a lot of different outlets for its for its production. But I mean, a big part of the bull case here is that you need um, you you should need uh, stronger for longer natural gas prices in the United States. So I guess my risk is that that LNG bid, maybe if the if the global LNG market sorts itself out, you know, three, four years from now does that, you know, does that bid potentially go away?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, um, I think from, uh, and I can't remember the full supply demand picture for, uh, international LNG, but I think we're in a bit of a drought again from kind of 2022 until 2025 from additional capacity. I, I don't know if Cosgrove could speak closer to that or, or someone else could, I guess maybe Josh could, if he were still here, I don't know. He, he's gone. Um, But I think what's pretty telling is you're seeing a number of um, Chinese and and European parties contract long-term LNG. And so, you know, the question I would have for you is, if LNG was so available, why do you need to contract it for multi-years? So I I think the contracting is, is a bit of a clue that, you know, some of these larger parties do see... Um, supply of LNG being a bit of an issue, but unfortunately, I don't have a, you know, here's the number where this undersupplied until um, 2025 for you, not not on hand at least.
0: Okay, so anything else? Um, anything else on kind of the, the the macro fundamentals before we start to really tie it to consult? Uh,
2: I, I guess um, the one other comment I would make is that. You know, if, if we're if everyone's so focused on getting off of coal, um, then you kind of have to go LNG. You have you kind of have to go gas because, you know, there, there's not too many power choices you can make. You either have to build a, a ton more nuclear. You either need to build more natural gas um, or you need to, to build more coal. And um, if you are if you're arbitrarily restricting coal, then that must mean you only have that nat gas and nuclear to really go to and um, even nuclear hasn't had the best kind of forward 10-year build plan from from European and international nations i mean we do see some some countries committing to it in, in a big way and, and i think that's a positive sign but not nearly enough so you know we're, we're putting kind of all our eggs in in the natural gas basket right now in my view and um, I just don't think the basket is is big enough or reliable enough to, to
3: deliver. Um, just for the international LNG thing, I actually did some work on this a couple of years ago, but there's also the infrastructure cost and uh, gasification, regasification that usually adds about two to three US dollars onto the cost of LNG itself.
2: That's a, that's a very good point. You know, it's, it's not just about the export capacity. It's about, you know, who can accept that export capacity because you need to
3: have the facilities for that. Yes. Yeah, so I think thinking about the LNG thing, you have to add on to these bait costs because um, if you read uh, Gazprom's annual reports and their, um, what was it? Their, their, uh, uh, their uh, quarterly or investor presentations, they talk about it, how, um, because they have existing infrastructure into Europe LNG is not that competitive from a price perspective because of the structural infrastructure. I mean, the infrastructure requirements and that, that's a big input. That's about like maybe almost half the cost of the spot price of LNG sometimes.
4: Can, can you be more specific on, on the actual cost on a per BTU or, or, you know, how they would price it here in the United States, say we're at four. Dollars here, and they added the um, that infrastructure cost. What what would it be, um, you know before before you know uh, goes over to Europe, for instance. Uh,
3: I think I did some reading about uh, on uh, Chenier and they're the, they own the big terminals. I think, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the lowest they've got is maybe like a buck eighty for shipping, and they probably have to add maybe another twenty cents or thirty cents for the regasification on the other side. I'd have to double check with that, but that's my understanding. And if you a uh, good um, reference point would be um, Gazprom's reports because they compete directly with LNG because they own like uh, the biggest natural gas pipeline system in Eurasia, and also uh, I think the ticker is TELL. They're they're building a more LNG export capacity and Cheniere, and you can kind of compare these uh, their costs against each other. Thank you.
0: Okay, thanks. thanks for that. Yeah, and I don't want us to go down too much of a rabbit hole there because it's kind of much more of a second order, third order effect. But, um, so K&L, uh, let's give the setup for, for Consol, why it's interesting. Um, you know, they've got lots of optionality on where to send tons. Uh, let's, let's start talk, putting, putting kind of some numbers uh, and why you're excited about the stock, uh, kind of how much they can make in 22 and 23, those sorts of things.
2: Yeah, sure. So let's, let's, I think, start with, um, what is their productive capacity? We can go from there. Um, so they have the, uh, the Bailey Enlow and Harvey mines uh, they're all in basically right next to each other. Um, and the they, console talks about a production capacity of something are somewhere around 28 and a half million tons from from those mines um you know of that production five uh about 25 million is, is is probably associated with long walls um and uh the rest is is related to the number of um continuous miners that they have at those mines i think they have something like 18 continuous miners um and uh it, it what's what's Interesting, or, or what? What makes console of interest to me is that um, the console. Um, oh, sorry, one sec. Just make sure I get the, the exact terminology right. Uh, the uh, The actual Pennsylvania uh, property is um, one one of the lowest cost providers of thermal coal in uh, in North America, and uh, globally, it's also in kind of that first quartile of, of costs. At least that that is how council uh, kind of explains where they sit. Um, so essentially you have some of the, the, the cheapest thermal tons um, in one concentrated area that has um, a lot of optionality on where they can deliver those tons. They can deliver them domestically. They have an export facility that can deliver um, those tons to the Rotterdam region, and they deliver tons into India. Um, so, so they have a lot of um, potential um, levers to pull on where to uh, where to send their tons. So, you know, if if for example domestic um, coal generation um, retires quicker than than they would prefer, then then they have the ability to to send those tons elsewhere. And so I like that they have that optionality on the uh, deliverable the, the delivery area of the tons and I like the fact that from a production standpoint or a production cost standpoint they're on the lower end the lowest end of the cost curve in in North America and on the seaboard market so um, you know even if coal generation starts to um, slow its growth uh, I think that you um, console is well positioned to be one of the last coal providers.
0: Yeah, and I think KNL if I remember correctly from from either your table or a company presentation, they've been positive cash flow I think 4 years in a row. Um, which has seen a lot of different kind of thermal markets, correct me if I'm wrong on that comment. One sec. And I think that, inc- I mean, my point being that includes, you know, a pretty awful year in, in 2020, and it would be a good indicator that, um, you know, there's being in that first quartile is, is some nice downside protection.
1: Uh,
2: yeah, I, I'm looking at CapEx. That's part of my problem. Yeah, they've been essentially, you know, free cash flow positive. Yeah. Um, for the for the whole period i think there was uh in q2 2022 there they did dip down into kind of a free cash flow negative um period yeah. but yeah, i've, I've know, actually gotten the numbers up
5: here free cash flow is positive i mean as far as i can go back right now is 2017 but yeah they've been they've been in good shape even even during 2020.
2: yeah they, they still they still made money in 2020. um i Matt in Q2, I think they, they, they did have a bit of a weakness there. Um, But you know, who didn't Um, it was a bit of an extreme market. Um, So again, you know, the reason why console is interesting is the low cost of production and the um, the optionality on where to deliver those tons. Um, And I I can get more into kind of switch now into more of the forecast and, and discuss specifically, you know, why i think they're they're going to do well the next 12 24 months um if i'm talking about does that work
0: yeah absolutely
2: so, so for for um for 2022 the key thing is in their third quarter console provided us details that they'd contracted about 20 in a 20.2 million short tons um for the year which is basically uh, well it's not basic it's it's, it's essentially the exact number In my view that's that's like 84 percent of their, their their production is 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 contracted so you have really good line of sight to what their um, pricing is going to be for 2022 they've let you know uh, what the pricing for domestic tons will be and um, They have this PGM contract as well, which thankfully, because PGM um, has futures, you can actually have a a fairly good estimate of what they will receive for those tons as well. And again, for the um, offshore um, export market, you you can look at the API2 futures market, and that helps you kind of have a good sense for for where prices are going to be i think that you know a comment that could be made is that um, any futures market is is it's just an indication it's never it's never um, a complete picture so you know what whatever the futures curve is the only thing you can know is that it's it's never going to be that um, but given the european situation I, I i just think that the api 2 um, market is going to be continue to be a tight market for a while now um, I mean, is it going to be as tight as it is right now? No, absolutely not. We're, we're dealing with a very extreme circumstance, but um, could we see tightness till you know, for the next two years? I, I don't see why not. Um, there, there are some issues at hand here. Um, it's not just um, Russia failing to deliver natural gas for, for political reasons. It's, um, it's, a, it's a failure to reinvest to a certain extent in energy products in Europe. And I think that's a big, a big issue at hand. And I, and I think that, you know, I think that this winter could be a, a bit of a, this bit of a, a political turning point for, for, um, how Europe views energy products going forward. Not many people are going to appreciate paying the uh, dollar per megawatt price they've been paying or dollar per kilowatt price they've been paying in Europe. And I think that's going to drive, um, I think that's that could potentially drive the um, energy decision making go forward. And, and if you wanted to reduce prices um, go forward, well, coal is one of the, the cheapest energy products that, that can that can cross you know cross the seas. So I I think the obvious choice in my mind, or the logical choice in my mind, would be for um, them to fix the problem by using a bit more coal. But I don't. I don't necessarily. We don't necessarily need to see that. Um, although we are. We are seeing it in Spain. We are seeing turned on plants in Spain. We're seeing turned on coal plants in UK to deal with some of the crisis. And the question is, how long does this crisis occur? I guess we're going to find out. But certainly uh, the. Um, the futures market seems to think it's it's going to continue until next year at least that's uh, what recent trading has suggested
0: and so the way this all plays out for you this is actually quite a stark contrast from let's say the way that we're modeling arch where you have this unbelievable 22 and then you know any reasonable analyst is saying all right and the you know i got to take my 23 numbers way down for seaborn met you know there's this supply demand catch-up you know feels like with console, it's okay, we got to get some of the contracting pig through the Python, but I'm really bullish on API two for a multiple year period. And hence, I've got more EBITDA on cash flow in 23 than 22. Uh, I want to make sure I read that correctly and, and tell me what you think about that sort of line of thinking.
2: Actually, I, I think that um, I think 2023 could be a uh could be a domestic year again too. I, I think that domestically, um, you know, we, we did, uh, we essentially hit the lowest level of coal here in North America in the last like 40 years. So I, I think we're gonna see a bit of a restocking domestically. And I don't think what was contracted in 2022 does that. Um, I think that, that restocking cycle could continue till 2023. And it's a bit telling in that console even provided a bit of new contracting in 2023 in their Q3 call. So they've already contracted 5.8 million tons in 2023. And I I think that, you know, as time rolls on, we're going to see that 2023 contracting grow. And um, Northern Appalachian prices, I believe right now are something like, $100 Q1, $90 Q2, and uh, $80 Q3. Um, So, you know, the the potential for them to contract back here 2023 for, for, let's call it north of 60, I think is high. And if they contract at 60, that's a significant change to what they had previously been contracting at. You have to remember that 2022 contracts occurred in, in 2020, some of them did, um, or sorry. Um, some of them came in, in 2020 and some of them came in, in 21. And so, you know, while they only have, I think around $49, a contracted price in, in 2022, um, that's an average of some of the, the good contracting they managed to do this past quarter and past two quarters. And some of that is, um, some of that is 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 much earlier contracting, which was probably contracted at, at much worse prices. 2023 is not going to have that issue. They're they're essentially going into the 2023 contracting period with the best case scenario from from contracting standpoint, in my view. And Matt or Cosgrove, if you could comment on that, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what, what you have to say.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, yeah,
2: so they're, they're to... uh, just go real ahead. quick, Andrew, they're go ahead.
1: Run inside. But, um, but yeah, no, mm-hmm. you're, you're 100% right. Uh, most of the tons were contracted or a good portion of them were, were done when nat prices were at their lows. So the, the difference here as you know, T webs was just saying is that, and which is kind of amazing. And as you said, it's a natural gas play, so you're really concerned. You're more concerned about what the curve is doing 24 months out, and because there's not going to be a coal res- supply response, it's more about the domestic net gas price. And you could have a situation where EBITDA free cash flow are up on a on a on a rock basis next year, and again in 23, and even maybe in 24, so long as you know Henry Hub is is above 350, because that's just the that's just the setup because as you know the the pig in the pipe py, python type metaphor so yeah it's 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 a much there's much more visibility and it's it's there's much less you know volatility with respect to um, you know the outcomes so yeah
0: yeah and I do just want to share the numbers for everybody on the call just in case you haven't read K and L's post because I think this is a crucial point he's got ebitda at 450 going to 680, going to 930 in 21, 22, and 23, and free cash flow goes from 220 to 495 to 816. We'll we'll get into more of the context of what that means relative to kind of market cap and EV right now, but it really is. There's not a lot of models I see in commodity spaces that look like this.
2: Yeah. And I I think, so there's a couple of reasons why it looks like that. Um, First of all, uh, 2022 versus 2023, we're gonna see more production in 2023. There's been a, a, a legendary long wall move that uh, I think surprises in the duration of the, the move, um, which means that there's some production that would typically be available in 2022 that's, that's not. And there's a question in my mind whether or not they managed to complete that sooner versus what they've indicated, which I think is Q4, Um, 2022, Um, that is going to add significant tons to their their 2023 um, uh, production and and sale. Um, And then, of course, uh, I'd be remiss by not commenting on their uh, lovely API2 hedging uh, that they did in Q2 of of 2021, so so they hedged, I think it was 2 million tons in, in 2021 and uh, Q2 2021. And of course, you know, a month later, uh, API2 decided to uh, really um, blow up in price. And so they're underwater on, on, on those hedges for, as I see it, about 96 million. So, and they're still drill, delivering that kind of 500, this number I provided, that, yeah, $500 million free cash flow. So, so, uh, so you, you have 2022 uh, contracted tons being a mix of really good prices and really bad prices, or 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 decent prices, and 2023 is, as we see it right now, is shaping up to be contracted tons of only really good prices. Um, 2022 had some contract derivatives that were offside, and they have the long wall move. So. Uh, 2023 is actually setting up to be a really um, interesting year for console.
0: Yeah, and maybe just for, for everybody else, put that in the context of kind of current market cap on the stock and uh, uh, re- really tie it to, to um, uh, yeah, just give, just give all the big picture numbers on the stock so that everyone can, can understand the context of what that cash flow means.
2: So I'm just gonna work off of what I have in the model. I know the price has probably changed today. So you're just gonna have to bear with me. I'm using $24.34 stock price, market cap of 839 million. I see kind of long-term debt of 673 million plus cash on hand of 199. So an enterprise value of 1.3 billion. And I think that cumulatively between um, 2021 and 2023, they're going to be able to to deliver one hundred one point five million, sorry, one point five billion free cash flow and about two billion worth of a so, um So they're just in such a, a tremendous position to to um, perform the next kind of twelve to twenty four months. So I think mostly twenty twenty two is um, a. Uh, a bit of a, a locked-in year. There's not a whole lot of movement left for 2022. There's a lot more potential movement in 2023. But I, I like the the current setup for 2023, given that I don't think the Europe situation will be fully addressed. And um, I think that natural gas could also be underpinned to a, or pushed to a higher price because of the consistent LNG demand um that we're seeing so you could have a scenario where 2023 looks like this or it looks better you know 60 dollars a short ton is is um is not nearly as much as where the market is today you know again uh, north north appalachian coal is going for 100 in q1 90 in q2, and q2 and and 80 in q3 and i'm here i'm talking about 60 for 2023 if we have challenges with, with natural gas and, you know, uh, certainly the weather hasn't been helpful this winter, but if, if we have challenges with natural gas and we stay kind of north of that 350 level, I think we could, I think we could contract north of 60, but I, I don't need to even consider that scenario. So I'll just, I'll think about the scenario at, at 60 and that's what I'll focus on.
0: Right, and, and get, I mean, I know that every year the mix is going to shift, but, but what's a rough breakdown of what goes into Northern Ad versus what what, what should be priced on API2, what should be priced at PJM? Uh, just help us understand kind of the mix. It, it, again, understanding that it can change with management decisions.
2: Yeah, so PJM um, is fairly easy to answer. It's three and a half million short tons is what they typically look to sell into PJM. Um, that. They also sell you know further tons into um, the the kind of PGM market, but they do have those tons tethered to the PGM uh, megawatt price. Uh, I think the last kind of couple quarters you you've really seen a, a, a split uh, of roughly fifty uh, percent export, fifty percent um, domestic. And I, I think it, I think that might change in, in in q in in 2022 just because we did run into a bit of a, a restocking cycle domestically so i think we'll see um more tons go domestic um but again i think because they have the optionality they're going to allocate to whoever's going to pay the most which is what i like i, I like that they have that leverage in the conversation to say well hey, if you don't want to pay north of $60 a ton, I'm going to go to API2, or I'm going to go to Pet Coke, uh, and, I'm, and I'm going to sell it for, for $65, 70 um, and, and then it's just a question of, OK, well, do you really want it? Right.
0: So we got into this um, conversation on, on the arch spaces. You know, what is the conversation about building a war chest, uh, you know, and I'm looking at Consol and, you know, a billion three of free cash flow in 22 and 23. And they should be able to pay off pretty much all of their long term obligations as we get at some point in 23. Uh, in addition to just the debt, I think probably some post retirement benefits as well. Is this a management team that needs to build a war chest? Uh, you know, are they going to feel uh, the, a social a social mission to uh, save us from a failing grid and, you know, go do a greenfield development? Uh, are they going to get do M&A? What, what are you thinking about how they're going to spend all this cash?
2: I think management's already made their um, their play for the next couple of years, and I think that play is, is ITMAN, which is the uh, low-wall Met coal mine that they're looking to put into production. So... Um, I think we've already had that hit to the stock, if if you will, in in that um, you know they've allocated significant capital to to put this mine uh, into production. It's it's a, a diversification for them from their thermal coal into met coal, which is um, which is interesting. Um, you know, when I run the economics on Itmen, uh, it's it's kind of high 10% IRR at, at kind of a, a longer term flat price. And at Strip, I think it's around 40% IRR. So, you know, when, when you look at the company compared to 2022 and free cash flow to market cap, it's like 59%, 60% free cash flow to market cap based on on the prices I'm, I'm kind of talking about, um, you know, in my view, it would have been better if they they you know bought back the stock. If you're trading at 60% free cash flow, uh, I think you, you're probably best to clean up um, your your best to reinvest in, in what you already own. So so just double down on your current cash flow. Um, however, they've decided to to expand into Itman, and um, you know we'll see how that turns out. Uh, it does add some incremental cash flow in 2022 and further still in 2023 as it goes up to full, full ramp in 2023. Um, so I, I think that that is, you know, really been the, um, the move that, you know, for Arch, you know, if we were talking about Arch right now. We'd say, OK, well, is Arch looking to build another mine? Um, and, and my answer for that is no. I think for console after Itman, I'm not sure they have any other organic projects. So certainly there wouldn't be anything organically for them to do. From a, um, a, I guess m and A M&A standpoint, I also don't think that that they'll do anything. I think that at that point they'll uh, they'll focus on um, free cash flow and 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 paying down their debt. And once debt is done, I, I think they'll move on to capital return Um, if you look at how management is compensated they're compensated on free cash flow and and paying down debt so that's i guess what i expect them to do
0: how does that work so they essentially just have a net debt target that's set at the beginning of the year uh that they try to achieve by end of year or is it some sort of longer term target
2: yeah, it's it's a, it's a basically a yearly roll on free cash flow and, and net debt, and and they you know they get compensated based on either hitting that target or going above and beyond it. So um, I I think that's that's really what's going to occur here is we're going to see them uh, reduce their uh, their debt load, and you're going to see uh, an increasingly cleaner balance sheet. And then I think sometime in kind of the second half of of 2022 or or maybe even earlier, they'll start to Talk about um, capital return. It could be as early as, as Q2 from a from a, a conversation on um, capital return. It's always in my mind that you know if you know that you're on a path to to um, to debt free, and you go from let's say you know $600, 700 million dollars debt down to you know two hundred million dollars debt your ability to service that 200 is, is significant. So do, do you really need to look for the full expedited path tip to pay off before announcing some start of, of capital returns? I mean, we certainly saw that with Arch, even if it was just a, you know, a small kind of check the box dividend. I think we could see something kind of Q2 time period for a small, maybe check the box, box dividend or some sort of conversation on um, what they will do with capital post um, a clean balance sheet.
0: Yeah, I guess my only question is they have a relatively substantial, I think, post-retirement benefit and ARO on the balance sheet. Uh, is there a chance that those need to be uh, taken to zero as well before we have these conversations?
2: The, the ARO is associated with their um, their plants and their, their plants have like a reserve life of, or sorry, their mines. Their mines have a reserve life of 23 years. So, um, I, I just don't see how they, um, they start addressing their ARO. And then if you look at um, the slide from their deck, they do do a lot already to, to seal certain areas and, and to, to address areas that they've already produced under, out of. So I, I think that um, ARO is gonna continue to be far out here and um, I, I don't think it's gonna be a, a, a focus. Um, but, you know, Matt, I'd be interested to hear your thought.
5: Um, sorry, I was on a different call for a second. What was the question?
2: The ARO associated with consoles, mines, I mean, they're, they have what, like a 24 year life, a reserve life index. So, you know, it's pretty far out there, but, um, I, I don't think there's any way to, to, uh, address their ARO right now, um. Cause it's so far out, but I don't know. What are your thoughts?
5: Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, uh, 24 years of mine life as is, but there's more coal over there. Um, you know, you might be talking about, you know, long wall panels that aren't, uh, that aren't as robust, but um, they, they can operate for, for way longer than that, 40 years probably. Uh, but they're not, there's no reason to put those reserves, you know, on the, on the sheet here at this point in time, just because of the uncertainty of, um, uh, you know, of, of what the industry is going to look like in the future. Um. It, you know, the, the way that the way that I'm sort of looking at them right now is that, you know, really, I mean, for, from my perspective, it's sort of like you alluded to earlier. This is a this is really a play on, uh, you know, uh, getting getting debt really taken care of uh, and and also having a more rope. The people are uh, are sort of realizing and then, in addition to that, it's basically a call option on, uh, you know, on international pricing. So uh, while you guys were, were talking there, I was actually pulling up ARA stockpiles by port, and uh, you know the big one in Rotterdam is uh, is EMO Estron, right? And EMO Estron, since its peak here over the summer, is down about twenty percent, and that is call it two thirds, two thirds of total, uh, you know, of total ARA stockpiles. So, you know, in in the event that we do see a pickup in stockpile replenishment um, uh, as we move into the beginning of the year, which I certainly think is plausible, um, that that bodes well for for international pricing and any any further contracts that uh, that Consol, you know, puts on the books, you know, going out further, um, which there's there's not going to be a lot left for 2022, but you know, we're talking incremental tons, but is, is representative of where I think longer term contract pricing is going for, for the domestic side, um, you know, pricing right now for the domestic side is like 100, you know, Q1, Q2, Q3 is like a hundred, call it 90 and then call it 85. So the, the forward curve for, um, you know, for coal is, uh, I think, let me pull up the forward curve for gas here. Um, sort of representative of what the gas curve looks like but obviously given the supply it's it's much stickier you know as we move into 2023 um uh, let me see where the curve is right now for gas we're basically moving from you know three dollars up to 380 and uh, and then in 2024 maybe from 275 up to 360. And despite all of the you know, near-term craziness that's happened in the gas market, uh, those, those levels have been relatively uh, consistent. Uh, there has been a lot of move on the, on the, on the out years. So at those gas prices, um, $60 to $65 Northern coal uh, that plays. And, and that's, you know, t- to me, when I think about like what their future revenue is going to be, the, the evolution of that market um, is just basically going to be higher for longer. Um, you know, how much longer probably until we get, you know, significant retirements in the, in the mid 2020s. Um, But uh, you know, to, to the point that that's been made on other spaces before um, I I think here over the next winter or two um, you know, I'm not sure we're going to get a come to Jesus moment on grid reliability this winter, but um, you know, next year is always a, always a possibility. There are retirements on the book for, for 2023. So you know, short short answer is we'll see. But as far as asset retirement obligation goes, I, I just I don't think that comes into play in terms of in terms of valuation here at this point in time. I mean, that's uh, they're going to they're going to take care of that as they go. You know, as they move from panel to panel, and I think some of that will be capitalized incrementally over the years. Hope that makes some sense.
2: Yeah, thanks, it's Matt. Uh, Thanks, Matt.
0: So KNO, can I just play devil's advocate for a second on the stock? Um, more so than the numbers. Uh, The numbers look amazing going into 23. I think, um, you know, that's obviously not where consensus is. You're you're far above consensus. Um, My question would be, to what extent do you get this dynamic where you've got a long time to wait until people start to believe the 23 numbers? Um, And you know, not the capital return. I mean, I mean, I don't really know if capital return is that much of a catalyst as is. I mean, we'll see as we as hopefully we get into somebody like an arch, uh, you know, turning that spigot on. Let's see what the stock does. But we don't have our real answer yet. Um, but, you know, what's the what's the catalyst path here? Because to me, with these equities, you're constantly fighting Either people not believing your outer year numbers or, or people not paying you for your outer year numbers, as we see with the Met Cole plays right now, as we're on the precipice of a 22, where they're all going to make more money than you ever imagined possible. So I guess I, I kind of just want to play devil's advocate on how does the stock work um, more so than the fundamentals playing out? I think every fundamental point you're making is very well supported.
2: Sure. So from like a a catalyst standpoint, I think, um, I think Q4 is going to be beyond crazy. I I think I've kind of sandbagged my Q4 numbers. Um, I I think it has the potential to be just like a, 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 like a a real blockbuster quarter in that anything delivered to the seaborne market should have blockbuster prices. Um, I, I actually, you know, reduced the number, you know, 10 or, Twenty bucks a ton, seaborne because it was that kind of ridiculous, and I, and I just didn't want to have to defend those prices. Um, so, so I I think you're going to see a strong Seaborn, um price realization Q4 this year and Q1 next year, and 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 I, I think um, I think that's going to be a large catalyst. I think you're going to see the company talk more about um what they've actually contracted for 2022 they're going to speak towards what they see as um their cash flow and and their capex i think that is going to help give some credence to at least 2022 and 2022 numbers are already looking really strong and and essentially a large part of that is locked in so uh, i think that could be a, a big driver um i think on top of that if you want to think about it um i think politically there could be a driver towards more coal i think there could be an event in 2022 related to more support for coal i mean i certainly think that we have the the right uh democrat fighting for for coal um and you know matt can probably add to that but um i i i think that uh I think that a lot of these core retirements we talk about are, were driven by analysis done in the 2019, 2020 timeframe. And I I just, I think that we're going to see a bit of a, maybe a a roll of a year here or there for for a lot of retirements. And I I think that's going to make a difference. I think, I think we're going to start hearing more about that. Um, You know, of course there's the, um, renewable credits that uh, the Build Back Better plan was supposed to um, extend. So there's a lot of potential for, um, I think, political-related catalysts. Uh, I can't necessarily um, point to any specific one right now, but I I think there's a lot of potential for that. So I would say the the immediately clear catalysts are, I think Q4 is going to be a big quarter. I think Q1 is going to be a big quarter. And I think that those quarters are going to do a lot to address where the company sits today from a balance sheet standpoint, and I think it's going to set the um, uh, the focus towards what do you do when your balance sheet is clean. Um, does does that does that answer your question? It
0: does. It does. Yeah. Just a follow up to so how how well do you respect this management team? Um, kind of holding hands and, and helping let's say i don't know the sell side or the average let's say buy side generalists understand uh the numbers in other words if they have let's say they have a blowout q4 and um you know they've got a really great uh budget for for 22. um you know how 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 well do they communicate that are they overly conservative at times are they overly aggressive just Just give us a setup of what management does to kind of get the story out there.
2: Hmm. Well, I think that, you know, first thing I I need to comment on is pretty much all coal, um, coal management teams here in North America had had a, a, an abysmal, like just a, a brutal approach to their Q3 call. Um, I think that was a lot to do with, um, trying to stay out of the limelight of, um, the, uh, the environmental conference uh, that was going on. Oh, geez. What is it called? COP26. Uh, COP26. 26. Cop 26, sorry, brain fart here. Um, but I, I, I think that with um, Q4, we're going to have the full year done, and they're going to have a, a lot more insight into what their 2022 20, year is going to look like than I am. And I, I think that's going to give them the confidence to be able to um, – speak to what the strategy looks like. I think that for a lot of these management teams, they went into 2021 not knowing if, if things were going to improve. And, and they certainly didn't look like they were going to rep- improve after Q1, but, um, you know, Q2 and Q3 were just like a, a rocket upwards. So, you know, if I were a management team in, in that position, I, I would be very hesitant to to comment about the um the ability for that to sustain until I'd seen more time go by. So I, I think part of it is just the, the attributes of of the situation that console is in is going to be significantly more clear at the end of the year. So I think that management can speak to it more. Do I know if they will do that? I don't, I, 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 I do not have, um, you know, five years of listening to these guys on on, on conference calls to tell you, you know what you should expect from from each individual, but Matt, maybe you spent a bit more time listening to this team.
5: Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I can't say as I know exactly how how the the queue, uh, you know, the annualized call is going to play out. I don't know, you know, how if they'll be you know pretty much complete with contracting by you know by the end of the year. Um, but what what I would expect, uh, what I would expect. Uh, Jimmy and the IR team uh, to want to communicate uh and, and you mentioned they've been pretty good about getting back to you right
2: yeah I, I didn't quite get there yet but um they um their IR team is is fantastic um so
5: yeah so i i think uh and you know the the last last conversation that i had was you know with them was kind of yeah you know, they they want to get um uh poised for uh, to grow revenue to grow eps over the next you know four to eight quarters hopefully you know assuming pricing holds up and what I, what i would expect them to begin to say is we're seeing interest for you know for contracts into 2023 and to talk a little bit about pricing out that far because there's really no visibility on it in terms of um um, you know, pricing that's available, you know, via Argus or via CoalDesk or via you know, pretty much any other uh, service. We just don't typically go out that far. And most of the deals are done via Handshake. Um, but, uh, you know, I know just specifically from talking to, to folks who have uh, knowledge of what PJM looks like, PJM stockpiles have, have improved um, relative to the last time I think that we discussed it. Uh, but uh, I think back then we we're talking about you know maybe 40 percent of suppliers, mostly mostly river served utilities, uh, were in pretty good, were in OK shape uh, heading into winter, uh, and that's improved to about 50 to 55 percent over the past month because we've had you know these blowtorch temperatures, uh, which has been good. Um, you know, however, the the rail served component of uh, of of PJM uh, still I, I think is struggling a little bit. Uh, most of that is due to uh, labor shortages hard hard to imagine for me that, that barges are are going to be better than than rail but here we are um, and uh, and I, I think for for those rail serve plants in particular the the more that they can secure supply going forward the the more steadily they they think they can operate here this winter because they know supply will be coming back uh, you know uh, at least in terms of stockpile builds in the in the shoulders in the next shoulder season um, so, I would think that Consol's IR would want to communicate that on the next call, right? We're, we're seeing some activity for 2023. Those prices are in the high fifties, low sixties, maybe mid sixties. And maybe, maybe we comment about a couple of outlier sales. Um, But I, I would hope that they want to put forth the message that, you know, they, they are a, they're a, they're a higher priced product, a premium product relative to, uh, you know other northern app producers in the region. Uh, they're more reliable from a production perspective than you know a lot of central app producers. You know down in the central part of West Virginia, uh, those plants, Amos and others, are, are really heavily dependent on central app coal still, and there's just no incremental central app supply. So and you know moving out into the into the wider you know PJM region, um, people who can get who can contract supply readily consult. Uh, is a is a you know like uh, is a well-oiled machine so they they know the rail knows when when tons are going to come through and you know hopefully they can plan better for it uh, this time around but i would i would think all of that kind of plays into uh you know jimmy and the crew talking about um uh robust contracting not just you know for the remainder of 2022 but also into into the following year and I hope from the analyst community they they would interpret that as uh, you know increasing revenue, increasing EPS. You know the the rate of change basis for both of those uh, you know are set set to rise for you know somewhere somewhere between four and eight quarters, uh, depending on depending on how pricing works out.
0: Yeah, so, and that's what, that's sort of what I find vexing here is that. So I just pulled up consensus really quick. So just for everyone's perspective. Um, so K is at 688 for EBITDA in 22, and then 932 in 2023. Consensus is somewhere around 500 and change. I think 520 for 22, and then drops to a four handle in 23. So the 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 real blowout part of this story to me is versus current consensus expectations is very much in 23, um, where I think that's you know, 688 versus 520 is still amazing. Let's be clear. Right. But 932 versus 420 is out of this world. Incredible. And so, and that's what I I guess I should have given more context of what I'm getting at is how do you, how do you help others understand what's much more, you know, what, what's so out of balance versus the consensus expectations here priced into the stock is really 23.
5: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, based off of what the the gas forward curve is now, um, I would expect cal year, you know, calendar twenty twenty three prices for you know for consol spec to I mean we're sort of down by like ten percent to be somewhere in the seventies. Um, that's that's pretty good. And then if you think about, well, you know, well, gas prices are going to incrementally go down between now and then. Uh, the the friend price, you know, the the, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to cut you a deal on, on near-term prices, uh, and, and give you, you know, if you give me a premium on, you know, on future prices, like that sort of relationship building, uh, and, and supply securing, uh, you know, behavior, I, th- I think that gets you a price, you know, call it somewhere between 55 and 65 contracting for 2023. Um, you know, 2024 becomes a little bit more touch and go. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think with, with, Gas prices at or, at or above the three dollar range, um, sixty dollar sixty dollar Northern app plays, um, and at least at least the curve right now is telling us that's that's going to be at least around the case for more than twenty for for the next few years. Whether it turns out to be true.
0: We'll see. But, um, yeah, it's pretty phenomenal because if you're bid and ask for twenty. 20- 23 is call it 55. And let's say 70. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's currently in consensus expectations for 23 is literally 50. I think you have to put 50 in your model to get where to get where consensus is for, for 23.
5: Yeah. So, yeah. You know, uh, let, let's say, let's say the low case there, K and L, like we we contract in, in, um, in 2023 for like say $55. You know what does that do from a from a rate of change basis uh, overall?
2: One sec, sure. So, so Tweps, what was the, the number you're using as consensus for, for, for 2023? Was BIDA or was I think it-
0: it's I think it's right around 450. I just
2: pulled up EBITDA on Interactive Brokers, so like, I, trust me, it could be wrong. 450. So 55 brings us down to 863 for 2022. Wow. Matt. Yeah, love your brother, but can you mute yourself if you're sorry? Sorry. Uh, yeah.
5: That's
2: <laughs> <true>. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Did did we want to kind of open it up for for some broader questions here, or,
0: or? Yeah, one of the ones. It might be a bit of, a bit of a diversion, but one of the questions that somebody DM'd to me was. Hey, can you just speak quickly about why console versus some of the other thermal,
2: thermal, um, plays? Uh, console for me is, is a, um, a way to, to get exposure to, to European, uh, prices and to, um, and, and the reason why I like it from a, a European exposure standpoint, um, versus other North American names is I think it has better export capabilities from an export standpoint. And so I think that from a North American standpoint, it, it just has better optionality about where to send tons and, and can therefore likely achieve a, a higher um, price go forward. Um, if your comment is is, is about, um, you know, what about thermal names in, in uh, in, in the Asian kind of seaworn market, then, um, I, I, would say there, there are interesting Asian thermal coal names that are, that are worth doing work on. And, um, uh, I, I have positions in, in Asian thermal coal names and, and, and I, I think they're, they're worthwhile to own as well. Uh, but I, I want exposure to, to European, um, shenanigans related to ESG because I, I think they're sticky. And I, I think that, um, those shenanigans have significant potential that, that I I don't even need to pay for, um, but could resolve, resolve in my favor. Um, if that makes sense.
0: Would there be any material, uh, deviation in, let's say valuation versus one of the, one
2: of the bigger, let's say uh, Whitehaven in Australia or something like that? So, you know, I, I wish I could answer that question. I was working on my, uh, I have a, a model for, for Whiting, and and uh, I meant to update it last night, and and uh, it uh, it crashed on me, unfortunately. So I didn't get it fully updated. and I mean to, but I, I think Whiting is is, is uh, Whitehaven is, is a really uh, uh, interesting uh, thermal coal name. So it, it's one that that uh, I own and have owned in the past, and and you know a, a very interesting thermal name. So uh, that that's probably. Uh, worth its own discussion at some point and and, uh, if we could ever convince the koala to to give us his view (laughs) he would be the guy to do it Um, but yeah I I think that um, thermal coal markets in in, in Asia are are interesting because they have that perceived longevity I think that's part of the thesis here too with Europe is that um, everyone just assumes Europe is is going to disappear and I, I think that given what we've seen in the last couple of months, I think that question is', is up in the air again. Um, I, I, I wonder if, if thermal coal markets in, in, in uh, Europe are, are as dead as people think, certainly for the next you know two- year period, uh, I think they, they have the potential to be strong. Um, the question is, you know what does the five to ten year period look like? I think if we had this conversation a year ago, um, people would say, "No, Europe market is is done. It's 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 played out. It's 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 going nowhere." Um, that same conversation today, I think, is different. I think that conversation is, you know, holy shit, how how do we fix the problems that we've we've put ourselves in? And um, I I don't know what the quick fix is for for Europe, but I, I suspect that coal is going to be part of it.
0: By the way, I do want to open it up. If anybody that has a question and has not DM'd me, um, just go ahead and uh, go ahead and click request. I was going to say on the koala, I think he's made his views on Whitehaven very clear through Simpsons memes. So uh, I'm not sure what else he could really add other than those very, uh, (laughs) very insightful Simpsons memes, which are how the hell is the stock still here with, uh, (laughs) with, with Newcastle doing what it's doing? um can I, one one thing that we didn't discuss earlier that I thought was worthy of a bit more of a drill down is just you posted in your thread um the 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 potential cancellation plans and 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 I know that that you're i know that you'll take the other side of that trade um but it does stand out that I think there were like nine gigawatts in, in PJM. It was like half of the twenty-two retirements were supposedly going to hit PJM. Could you just talk to? Um, well, I, I guess let's just talk about that the retirements a bit in general. Um, how does a plant actually get? Like you know, if, if if a plant is showing up on that list for twenty-two. Um, what does this look like? Does the can get kicked down the road? Is it a huge political fight? Just the logistics of actually kind of kicking those cans down the road and then just comment on PJM specifically, because it was striking how much of the, I think there were 17 gigawatts slated for retirement in 22 and something like eight or nine of them were for, were for PJM itself.
2: Sure. So I, I, you know, first of all, I I guess I would say that I I don't have as deep an understanding on, on the, um, on the retirement plan as I, as I wish I did. Uh, I think there's a, there's a lot more to know. The challenge is, is that there's, there's just so many moving parts, um, you know, local, there's, uh, you know, the local grid operator, um, and then there's, you know, FERC, NERC, <laughs> and uh, EPA. Like there's so many different authorities that are involved, it's, it, it's challenging. Um, to, 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 to give you a, a real concise summary, what I can say is that um, I, I think that in my mind, the big driver for shutting down coal um, in the last five years has been driven by the fact that it's, it doesn't economically compete with or didn't economically compete with, with natural gas. And that's changed, at least as far as the, the forward curve suggests for for natural gas prices here domestically Um, so the question becomes then you know if you had made a plan in 2019 2020 uh, can you pivot it based on the fact that um this plant that you thought was a abandonment liability may actually have an extra one or two years of of of, of, um, productive cash flow associated with it so um, likely, and again, because I haven't gone through every single plant and and determined it's specific um, reasons for shutting down, but um, if they're shutting down because of the economics from one, one, two, three years ago, um, do they have the requisite licenses for multi-years? I suspect that most most power plants would have multi-year licenses from uh, the different regulatory bodies and then it's up to them to decide whether or not it's an appropriate timing from uh, uh, an economic standpoint to retire or not to retire and so i, I do think that the um, the change in the economic conditions should shift some of those plants out in retirement i, I don't know how many and and i, I can't specifically point to anything um, so that that's a bit of my challenge. And, and again, it's an area that I, I need to do more work. Um, so, you know, unfortunately it's, it's maybe not the, uh, uh, the best answer, but, uh, I, I do know that, you know, um, if you're given the option between, you know, spending capital to abandon a plant or running a plant and it makes money, I, I know the option I would choose.
0: No, that makes total sense. And, uh, And I'm sure you'll be all over it. And actually, as we think about it, some of these extensions could potentially be catalysts for the stock. Um, You know, if you hear about two, three of them in a short period of time, actually could be a very interesting bull case for the stock. So we'll we'll all be on the lookout for that. I had another question in DMs. Uh, Can we drill down on what's actually kind of locked and contracted in in 22 and 23 uh, in terms of either revenues or EBITDA?
2: Yeah, I, I can speak to what's locked from a from a ton standpoint. Have I have I done the analysis to break down um, how those tons locked uh, flow into EBITDA? No, I haven't done that that kind of uh, breakdown. So um, but wh- why don't I speak to the tons that are locked in as of Q3 and we can go from there, at least from a, a discussion point of view. Okay, um, perfect. So for, for as of Q3 2021, um for 2022 uh 20.2 million tons were locked in of those 20.2 million tons three and a half million are related to the pgm contract so they receive um a uh, basically a a price increase to to pgm and i think i do provide um what that formula looks like in 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 the preamble to this discussion so you know feel free to, to look it up there i think another um 10.7 million tonnes are are locked in from a domestic standpoint. Um, Although they don't specifically comment what those 10.7 million tonnes are are locked in at, um, in the Q3 call, console did provide a kind of a a blended average for um, their locked in tonnes. It was in the low 50s, at least that was their comment in Q3. And so if you, if you do some kind of um, backward calculation between PGM contracted tons and the domestic tons, I, I think you, you can arrive at somewhere around like $49 a ton for, for those domestic tons. So so I, I believe that is the uh, you know 10.7 million tons locked in at around 40 million or $49 a ton. Um, and then they have, I think 6 million tons um, dedicated towards the API 2 API slash pet Coke uh, market and, and so, you know, those would be tethered to um, that futures curve, or at least at least that's how I think about it. Um.
0: Okay, got it. What have we missed, KNL? Anything, any any particular nuance that we've
2: missed? You know. Uh, Maybe I'll just comment quickly on, on, on PGM, because I, I, I think that there, there is some interesting uh, potential there uh, around what, uh, what happens if we do get a, a, bit, a, a bit of a cold shot. You know, uh, I know that December has been a massive disappointment from a cold weather standpoint in, in North America. And um, January you know, might be average or might not be, we'll, we'll find out. Um, the thing is, is that I think PGM because it's, it's relying too much on, on natural gas and, and typically natural gas fails to deliver when it gets cold. I, I think that if we got a, a five to 10 day cold event centered around PGM, I, I think we, we could see power prices really skyrocket. And if that were the case, then uh, console actually gets some of that, captures some of that value. So for example, if, if we move to $100 or $1,000 a megawatt um, for a day, which I, I think if if we do get a cold event, I, th- I think that's a real potential and I think it could go even higher and I think it could go higher and for longer um, just because I, I think there's too many demands on natural gas, whether it's export or... power gen or residential heating and and you know eventually someone's going to lose out and and my bet is it's probably the grid who loses out on natural gas molecules which means that you know the grid needs the price to destroy demand and if they need the price to destroy demand then it needs to go uh, quite a bit higher um so in a scenario where pgm experienced like a a thousand dollar megawatt hour day um in a cold event, I I think that's worth about, you know, nine ish million dollars for, for, uh, for console. So, um, it's kind of a, it's something to watch because in itself it's, it's, it's like a, it's a nice addition if we we get that, um, cold weather event, but more than that, it's, it's another kind of indicator to the broader public that, Hey, you know, there's something really wrong going on with the grid. And, um, you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, take it for granted that we can run it on nothing but wind, solar and, and natural gas. And, and maybe maybe we should have some, um, you know, funds dedicated to reliability. And I, I think if if that happens, you could have a scenario where, you know, maybe for five days, um, console brings in a, an additional, you know, let's call it, you know, 50 million bucks and, you um, and then you could also see the political messaging um, switch from a "how the heck did this happen" um, standpoint. And if and and my view is, if it happens, it's it's going to happen because natural natural gas fails to deliver. Um, I like again, I'm 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 a big fan of natural gas. I I own some natural gas production um, directly um, in, in wellbores, and 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 I think it's a a wonderful energy product. But it, it's a it's a Used in too 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 high quantities, it's not a great grid reliability energy product because there's too many demand pulls on it, and and it's a just-in-time and delivery system. So you know uh, when just-in-time messes up, you you have a a lot of problems. Um, You know ERCOT was a great example of that in 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 February this year. And um, I, I think there's potential for like an ercot like event here in PGM. And, and again, you know, well, twenty twenty winter, uh, you know, December wasn't wasn't quite as bad as, as this December from a from a weather standpoint. Um, there was basically no winter last year until February until the February event hit. So you know, I, I, you don't need a cold winter to 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 win here. what you need is you need a five to 10 day period where pgm gets hit with a cold shot because i I think that will be enough to show how unreliable um we've made our grid. and and frankly in my view i think that the longer that it that we that we don't have that cold shot the more unreliable we're making the grid and I, i would like i'd much rather see that cold shot hit destabilize the grid in some meaningful way this year, than then next year, or even the year after, because I, I think our ability to cope with it will be um, could could be significantly reduced. So I, I think we're just you know I'd, I'd rather kind of deal with it now, I guess. If I if I could choose,
0: <laughs> which I can't, it's scary. It's scary the way you put it. Um, go ahead, Deep Marcellus.
4: Hey, you're on mute if you're trying to ask a question. Hey, t Webb, while he's getting that um, together, I have a quick question for him. Um, Go for it. Okay, so we've all seen the natural gas chart over in Europe, and it's off today. Talk of LNG moving its way over there. And I frankly don't know the LNG market well enough to you know, make the call whether that's going to be able to alleviate things enough. I doubt it is just, you know, casual glance at it. Let's assume it's not enough to bring prices down enough where it alleviates the pressure on a lot of businesses that depend on competitive energy prices to survive in the global marketplace. So what I'm getting at is, um, a recession in Europe breaks the back of the energy market because it spills over into a global problem, a global recession. So if we get that, our, in, in my mind, I just don't know if coal markets are tight enough to sustain that. I doubt they are. So would you consider that a risk to prices?
2: So essentially um demand destruction because there's there's not enough energy is that a, a kind of a fair way to, to summarize it
4: yeah exactly
2: yeah so again i i think if if that were to occur still the key variable to solving that solution is is um energy so i i think that um i think that energy commodities uh in that scenario um still would have some holding power and I, again, I think the solution to address that problem um, quickly, in my mind, would be um, coal. You, you know, co- there, there's a reason why coal is is being um, added as a generating source in developing worlds. It's because it's it's quick and and cheap. And and so you know, if, if we have a if we have a, a, a a recession in Europe related to energy prices, and, and I don't see why we wouldn't, um, you know, it, it, is that not a, um, a greater endorsement of like, hey, your current energy policy is totally ass backwards and, you know, whatever you're doing, you need to, 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 you know, you need to change your strategy. So there's only so many options they can choose. And I, I think, you know, the only two options they would have are, are nuclear and, and, and coal. And I think that nuclear is a, a bit of a longer term strategy and I, I think it takes time to to play out so I, I think you, you could be in a scenario where if, if they if they truly want to address their situation then they, then they need a kind of a, a transition fuel if you will and uh, that could be coal for for a period of time
4: yeah I, I um I agree with what you're saying in a sense but like if we go back to 2007 and even into part of 08 it was before the recession really took hold but coal companies were i mean banging back then okay and then the recession hit took them out and then we had a giant stimulus out of china and it sent things right back soaring again you know but there was a, a gigantic sell off in in every resource because of that recession. So not that the demand isn't there for that energy, but short term, it just gets taken back out to the woodshed, if you will, and beat beat up. So, I mean, everything on paper looks really attractive. It's just a matter of if we can hold up is the way I see it. And I could be wrong, I just, it's a big concern, um, you know, given given where prices are at and then what's forecast there.
2: I think just to kind of add on to that, I think it it's already a bit of a focus for for politicians in that um, they are looking to now subsidize some energy spending. And I, I think if it continues to become a problem for them, um, I think we're going to see more governments respond to it um, in some form or factor, whether that's, you know uh, paying for some of the the energy bill or or just more stimulus. I don't know but i i suspect that it's going to be a bit of a a tough position for for governments to to not respond um and, and so especially because the government got them into this position so i, I yeah i mean you're, you're right if, if we have a you know 2008 re- repeat um then we should we we probably shouldn't even be talking about many stocks right like so I, you know i, I can't I can't find, I'm not going to be able to necessarily find a, a stock that is a 2008 proof stock. So um, I guess if, if that's what you think is going to occur, then, uh, you know, maybe you should just go to cash.
4: Yeah, I mean, and the other thought that was in my mind is if things do hold up, you can go with a um, some sort of put option that's probably worth the money, given what the upside might be. It, am I thinking about that right?
1: Yeah, I mean,
2: you could play this long short and you could find a, a, a dirtier shirt. And, and you know, if only we could think of uh, some thermal coal name that is uh, a dirtier shirt, uh, maybe starts with a B and ends with a U. Anyone? Um...
0: <laughs> that would be started. I love it. <laughs> I just want to hear. It's too bad Cosgrove's not on the call. I always like hearing his opinion on that one. <laughs> oh,
5: yeah, I mean, talk, I, yeah, we talked Cosgrove and I talked about it a little bit yesterday. Um, you know, the the difficulty with with BTU isn't isn't that you know the the operations themselves aren't you know aren't fine and aren't going to be able to capitalize. The the issue has always been you know sort of the the way that they choose to message to uh, you know to the on their conference calls and they're just, they, they haven't been pounding the table on success for, for a real long time. I don't, I don't know why that is. Um, couldn't, couldn't really tell you, but um, uh, you know, uh, pick, picking up like some, some high beta exposure here, like headed into year end, you know, maybe the beginning of the year, you know, I, I get it. It sort of makes some sense. And, and BTU sort of moves with uh, you know, sort of captures the beta of that uh, of any price move better than, than most, but uh, you know, domestic, pricing is isn't on you know really the upswing anymore so you know that that's largely in the past so you know metcol you know we think it accelerate a little bit from here but you know just how much it's more that the market is is sticking higher and if we see a deceleration in you know price it's just going you know we're going to fall back to 175 180 190 instead of back to 150 like we usually do um so you know, the, the beta move has already kind of happened and that's why I'm sort of, you know, I just, I, I can't, <laughs> I'm not sure I can stomach, you know, holding BTU through another, through another cycle like this easily tradable. I think, you know, if you use uh, you know, some kind of range bound metric, but um, just uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not holding it this time around.
2: Yeah. And I, I guess my comment was more, you know, if, if you were concerned about um, kind of a, a, energy uh you know recession essentially um you could pair your your kind of higher quality name console with a a lower quality name and and and, you know btu might be that lower quality name or it could be something else um and and you know you you, i think i think that could be a a way to approach the situation
0: i just have to make one quick editorial comment the you know, a lot of familiar faces on, on this on, on this episode. But what we're talking about here in terms of the shifting political winds in favor of a recognition, uh, you know, of what's gone wrong with the grid is such an unbelievably contrarian call. Uh, we all sort of shake our heads, yes, because we get it and we've studied it. But I still think we're not even up to bat in the first inning. We haven't even put our uniforms on in terms of just how violent that kind of reversion of sentiment would be, if that plays out in the next,
2: you know, six
0: to eighteen months.
2: Hey guys, I, I gotta, I gotta go. I, I've got a call coming, and I've been. It's, sorry, I gotta
0: jump. perfect. No, that's that's a, It's a good place to end it. K this was this was awesome. Everybody that jumped in and added questions, great job. Uh, you know, we'll be watching Consol. Uh, you know it's a it's a very very interesting name, um, and he's done he's done great work. So follow him if you're not already, and uh, we'll see you next week for episode nine. Thanks, everybody. Cheers, guys.